Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. What do you think of when you think of the 20th century? World wars, perhaps, or, or the space race, the invention of the computer, communism, capitalism. Well, when I think of the 20th century, I think of countries. The 20th century was an amazing time to create a country. In fact, by some measures, 140 of the 195 countries in existence today were founded in the 20th century. But how do you create a country? How do you build a nation? Of all the great nation builders in the 20th century, few thought more deeply about that question than Mustafa Kemal, uh, an ethnic Turk born in modern Greece who served as an Ottoman officer during World War I and built out of the ashes of the crumbling Ottoman Empire, a nation. Here's a few of the ways he did it. He simplified the Turkish language and converted it from an Arabic to a Roman script to drive up literacy rates. He centralized the education system and sought to minimize the role of religion in society. And he humbly took on the last name Ataturk or father of the Turks and became this massive and mythical figure in Turkish society whose portrait still hangs on the wall all over the country. That's a big one. Every nation needs a mythical figure and that's what Ataturk was. But there's now a new mythical figure in Turkey. It's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who served as Turkey's leader since 2003 and looks set to win yet another term after outrunning his opponent, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu in the election's first round on Sunday. And Erdogan's seemingly endless rule means Turkey is no longer the nation that Ataturk founded. But how has it changed? That's why I wanted to have on Gunol Tol. She is the founding director of the Turkish Studies Program at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C., an author, university lecturer, and media commentator who's written extensively about Turkish politics. And best of all, she joins me next. Hi, Gunol. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. So I first reached out to you about a month ago to schedule this, and at that time, Actually, really, even up until late last week, I had assumed that Erdogan would either be on his way out or at least on his way to defeat in a runoff. But that's that's not where we are. So where are we? What did the presidential election results from Sunday tell us? Uh, well, Erdogan is leading. He is at 495 uh, and uh, Kılıçdaroğlu, the main uh, opposition bloc's candidate, is around 44%. And then we have a third candidate who captured a little over uh, 5% uh, of the vote. Uh, so it's um, uh, the expectation was um, a, a a better performance from Kılıçdaroğlu given the country's huge problems, uh, flat, um, an economy that's in crisis, double-digit inflation, a country that's recently been hit by a devastating earthquake and other institutional problems. So that's why I think that's what boosted the hopes uh, of the opposition. So uh, in, in, in opposition circles, this is this is a big disappointment. What did the polling before the election miss? Not to say that they were off by so much in some cases, but what were respondents not telling pollsters and, and why were they not telling them? Well, in the majority of, of the polls conducted before the elections, Kılıçdaroğlu was leading uh, by a few points. We all knew that this was going to be a close, a tight election, uh, but only in, in the minority, maybe at two uh, among 10 uh, polls, Erdogan uh, 
uh, was seen as leading Kılıçdaroğlu. Uh, so that's not what happened. And in, in Turkey, and we've seen that in this country, in the United States as well, right? Polls were way off. Uh, because I guess there is this um, the social pressure on people, especially uh, far right populists, right? Like someone like Trump, it's not socially acceptable for people to be open about their support for Trump. Um, and and I think in Turkey um, that played a role, but also it's 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 also difficult to conduct polls in in autocracies where. Uh, people uh, people don't want to reveal um, their votes uh, in adv- in advance and one more factor is this is a deeply polarized country and I think the poll results uh, the uh, election results suggest that as well this is uh, almost two different turkeys that we're talking about so in such an environment um, both sides see this as almost an existential war and that puts a lot of pressure on on each side uh, not to reveal where they stand because it's such a polarizing it's a, such a polarized environment so i think that's some of the reasons why polls got it wrong yeah and there seems like there was Maybe an ethnic dimension, too, that Kalishirolu came from a religious minority that people weren't quick to admit uh, was the reason they wouldn't vote for him. But maybe when they got to the polling place, that was in the back of their mind. I mean, it leads me to wonder, was Kalishirolu the right candidate? We saw a member of his coalition try to back out and march from the coalition over worries that he couldn't win? Was he the, was he the guy for the job? Look, let, let, let me tell you this before that. I think, uh, obviously, there's a... Uh, Erdogan performed much better here, but we also have to take into consideration the potential of rigging. And uh, I know the opposition party said that, you know, yet there were uh, there, there were a lot of irregularities in thousands of, of ballot boxes. Uh, but on the other hand, this did not amount to a a significant enough factor to change the election results. But on the other hand, what we're hearing from from people on the ground suggests otherwise, and the opposition parties, remember, there is a second round. They really have to mobilize their people uh, to, to come out and vote in the second round, which really puts a pressure on them not to say too much about election rigging, because if they do so, then uh, obviously that's going to even demoralize a, a, an already demoralized uh, base even further. Uh, so that's that's the trick here. So you always uh, you always consider that this is uh, not a perfect democracy. This is an authoritarian regime. Um, and even um, after the vote, a decision by the country's top electoral board uh, suggested that how much is at stake for for Erdogan that they can go the extra mile to do anything. Uh, this electoral board, for instance, made a decision, a surprising decision after uh, after the vote, um, that in countries uh, like the United States, uh, UK, Ireland, these are countries where opposition candidate fare better. He captured almost 80% of the vote. Um, and the electoral board made the decision to restrict the number of days, uh, voting days, for citizens, Turkish citizens living in those countries to two days, as opposed to five days um, that um, citizens in other countries where Erdogan captured the majority can vote. So this tells you, and and usually um, people living outside of the country are around, there are three million voters. So it's still significant in a tight race, but it's not 
as significant as the domestic vote, obviously. So if the electoral body is is willing to go the extra mile to do this, uh, when um, when its impact is going to be much slower, you can imagine the things that they might be willing to do on the domestic front to manip- to manipulate the results. So one thing that I was before the elections, I've always argued that elections in Turkey matter and Turkey is not Russia, Turkey is not China. And I, st- I stand behind that. Uh, so this was never going to be an outright rigging from Erdogan's side, but it's it's a tight tight race. So a few votes here and there could make a huge difference. So imagine there are 190,000 ballot boxes. If he steals 100 votes, in 20,000 boxes, that will be 3 million votes, enough to change the election results. So so you, you always have to, before jumping into other um, maybe sociological analyses of the vote, you have to consider that. But this is not to say that, that we don't think hard about why so many people, despite all the problems, have voted for Erdogan. And there, again, I will tell you this, I think, again, Polarization plays a huge part here. That's what uh, authoritarian populists do. They polarize the country. They exploit the social political cleavages to such an extent that people do not see this as just uh, voting for a government is uh, that... They, they don't basically look at um, parties' performances because they see this as an existential threat to their survival. And that's why... Democratic failings might not matter as much because to them, this is a matter of survival. So they might just ignore the democratic failings and the country's centralization of power and even economic problems. Uh, and they, they, they vote for other partisan interests. So I think that's why when we are looking at the results, we always have to, have to consider how polarized uh, this country has become, and Erdogan managed to exploit uh, those uh, identity mm. and culture, uh, cultural cleavages uh, that are very strong in the country. Well, you, met, you mentioned there's some of the ballot counting issues, which are perhaps some of the, the more covert ways that uh, the Erdogan regime made this vote less free. But we know that they were using some instruments of the state to make this vote less fair. Can you can you talk about those? What in what ways did Erdogan use the institutions and machinery of the Turkish state to his advantage? That's exactly right. The playing field was tilted uh, heavily in favor of Erdogan because he's been in power for 20 years. He controls everything, institutions, media. Uh, just to give you an example, um, the Kılıçdaroğlu, the opposition candidate, received airtime for only 32 minutes while Erdogan received 32 hours of airtime in Turkey, uh, the state-owned broadcast. And that's can only... you pause there? What, can you repeat those numbers? <laughs> yes. That sounded like a. Did, was that a? Did you misspeak? <laughs> no, no. That was so. TRT is the is the, the state broadcaster, and Erdogan received thirty two hours of airtime, and Kılıçdaroğlu received thirty two minutes, and this is just one of the examples. And he mobilized state resources. He uh, even uh, even uh, the people in his cabinet, ministers, for instance, some of them were running for a parliament. Seat. And according to in the old Turkey, according to law, if you're running for a parliamentary seat, you have to resign from your cabinet post. Uh, but that didn't happen. And those state ministers used 
their um, of the, the the resources granted to them because they are uh, they are ministers to campaign. So they used my ta- tax money to fund their own campaign, and the opposition uh, did not have that advantage. And another thing that played a critical role is the control of media. Um, you know, there is this uh, wonderful bo- book called Spin Dictators that suggests uh, this century's autocrats, unlike the 20th, the 20th century autocrats like Hitler and others, uh, in this century, they use different means to control people. In the 20th century, they used fear and suppression. Uh, and in this century, they actually build and produce consent through manipulating and spinning the narrative. And that's what Erdogan did. He used fake, uh, deep fake videos in his campaign, linking the opposition to, uh, to terrorist groups, for instance. He framed them, framed the opposition as terrorists, uh, as pro-LGBTQ, and he falsely made, he made so many false claims on, on the campaign trail. And if you are a person who has a Twitter account, uh, who has an internet connection, you can just check if you are willing to to check uh, how truthful Erdogan is. You can do that in a minute. But if you are living in the heartland of Anatolia, if you're living in rural areas, there's not there's not a competing narrative here. What Erdogan says is the truth, and people believe that. So so that post truth um, thing worked brilliantly for Erdogan because he really played to the people's. Uh, fears uh, and and anxiety uh, and and it seemed to have worked. Yeah, and there, I mean there are deep cleavages and fissures in in Turkish society that Erdogan could speak to. You know, the, the Kurdish issue, which you've written extensively about the the uh, Syrian Syrian refugees. Just before we get to talking more about the way that Erdogan has shaped Turkey's institutions, I want to ask you about this X factor here, which is uh, the third party candidate Sinan, Sinan Oğan. Uh, who secured about 5% of the vote, as you mentioned, and has yet to endorse either candidate. He's a nationalist figure. Uh, what is he asking for in exchange for his endorsement? Well, uh, de- definitely an important seat. He just today talked to New York Times and he says, it's better for me uh, to be a, a VP than a uh, than a than a minister. So obviously suggesting that maybe the opposition is offering him some form of um, a, a post for, for minister minister post and he's, he's, he doesn't think that it's good enough. Uh, but besides that, besides personal calculations, he, um, as you said, he's a strong nationalist figure. He was once a member of, of, um, of this far-right party, uh, ultra-nationalist MHP. So he comes from that back background, and one of the issues that he he cares deeply about is the Syrian refugee issue. So he wants um, he wants the new government to not to give concessions, any concessions on that, and deport them immediately. And the second thing he is asking for is um, not to give any concessions to the Kurds. It could be the pro-Kurdish party, HDP, or Hudapar, which is this uh, fringe Kurdish Islamist party, and Erdogan uh, struck an alliance with them. Uh, so it's going to be it's going to be a difficult um, territory to navigate for Kılıçdaroğlu moving forward because he, uh, the pro-Kurdish party, uh, has a strong 
uh, standing. Uh, their vote is around 8%. Uh, so if he goes too much towards Sinan Oan, that's going to alienate that 8%. So it's, it's a really tricky tricky place to be in um so that's why uh i think it's um it's i think at the end of the day sinan oan it's i i see it more likely for him to be aligning with erdogan than with kılıçdaroğlu which obviously dims um the opposition's chances of a second round win Today's show is sponsored by Babbel. Going on vacation is great, but exploring the world like a local is even better. And not speaking the language is no longer an excuse. Babbel offers 10-minute lessons designed by real language experts focused on conversational skills in 14 languages so you can learn a language in three weeks and board your next flight abroad with confidence. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. Well, so then let's talk about what the next however many years of an Erdogan presidency could look. And, and one institution that we have to start with that Erdogan has profoundly reshaped during his time in office is the military. Can you, can you talk about the role the military traditionally served in modern Turkey and how Erdogan has changed it? Um, well, the military has been cons- was considered to be the guardian of the secular republic, the republic established by Kemal Atatürk, and they were... Um, very, they saw themselves as the guardian of the country's secular principles, uh, and they played the military played an outsized role in politics, intervening in politics often when they thought the civilian governments were compromising uh, the two red lines, which was uh, Islamic uh, political Islam and Kurdish separatism. Or when the military thought that that the civilian government was not doing enough, uh, was doing a bad job of go- at governing, uh, the military intervened. But unlike in the Middle East, Turkish military intervened and left power immediately to civilian government. Whereas in the Middle East, um, after coups, uh, military junta stays there for for years and decades. So that's not the case uh, in Turkey. Uh, after Erdogan came to power, uh, he came to power in 2002, uh, his ruling party came to power in 2002, and he, his number one goal at the time was curbing uh, the military's role in politics. But he understood from his experience uh, earlier that he could not clash with the military directly if he wanted to survive politically. So he picked a more sophisticated route, and that was um, promoting a pro-EU, pro-reform agenda, because uh, promoting Turkey's EU membership um, meant that Turkey had to carry out the reforms asked by the European Union, and that those reforms included uh, reforms to curb military's power. So he he sidelined his opponents in the name of democracy, and a lot of people uh, supported that. Um, so that's that was his strategy. Uh, on was he ever serious about EU membership? 
Uh, well, who knows? Maybe he was because I think here, uh, I think the European side also made a mistake because uh, at the time Erdogan was truly desperate to get Turkey into EU. And I'm talking about early 2000s, 2003, 4. Uh, but around 2005, European leading European countries like Germany and, um, and France started talking about a privileged partnership short of Um, full membership for Turkey. And that created a nationalist backlash in the country because many people thought that no matter what we do, we're never going to get into EU because we are a Muslim country and that's what this is all about. So Erdogan again um, rode on that backlash and he turned strongly anti-EU. But in the region as well, he pursued a foreign policy, he pursued a regional policy that sought not to to cross the military's red line because Erdogan did not want to provoke the military. So he pursued a very cautious foreign policy in the region, cultivating ties with, with regional autocrats, but first making sure that military's red lines were... Um, were obeyed, like, again, Kurdish separatism and, and political Islam. So I think he, he played a brilliant, brilliant game. And by 2011, um, Erdogan had consolidated power in his own hands, sidelined not just the military, but other um, parts of secularist establishment, too. And that's allowed him to, to change pretty profoundly the way that Turkey's political system operates too. That's exactly right. And uh, and uh, 2011, I think, again, once again, he used foreign policy developments on the foreign policy front to to burnish his, his Islamist brand. Um, uh, but, but he made a lot of zigzags on foreign policy. Uh, and all those zigzags can be explained by uh, his domestic calculations to to stay in power like converting turkey from a, a parliamentary to a presidential system which has placed a significant amount of power inside his own office right that's right and he did that largely thanks to the nationalist alliance he struck in 2015 and because before 2015 he did not have that majority to switch the country's parliamentary system to a presidential system uh, but in 2015 june Uh, 2015, he lost the parliamentary uh, majority in the country and he decided to uh, strike this deal with the Turkish nationalists. And um, and developments in Syria played a role there too because developments in Syria heightened nationalist anxieties in the country. Uh, many nationalists thought that Kurds were on the verge of establishing a Kurdish state. So Erdogan once again um, exploited that fear and boosted Turkish nationalism and rolled that nationalism to achieve what, what he wanted to achieve, which was a, an executive presidency without any meaningful checks and balances. And Erdogan has amassed this uh, enormous amount of power against the backdrop of a disastrous economy. I mean, what's behind, do you think, Erdogan's unorthodox economic management style? Can you talk about his economic management style too? Uh, well, yes, he, he believes in these orthodox theories uh, and there is there is no one to really check him. I mean, he's surrounded by people who are basically all yes men and he, they can't really, uh, they can't speak uh, truth to power. Uh, and he 
he I think genuinely believes that relationship between um, uh, that unorthodox belief, and he fired people who uh, wanted to push him more towards an or orthodox uh, policy. Um, Mehmet Shimshek, for instance, he had to leave in, uh, he was forced to leave, I believe it, that was in 2018, and Erdogan brought his son-in-law on board. Uh, and uh, and I don't think he's going to change the, the policies, the economic policies that he pursued before. And he said so himself on the campaign trail, uh, and that spells more trouble for, for Turkish economy and for Turkish people moving forward. A theory to present for you here, I mean, the author Susie Hansen wrote a, a piece for The New Yorker last week called Turkey's Earthquake Election. She discusses some of the corruption in Turkey's construction industry, which some experts say contributed to the deadliness of the earthquake yeah. in February, uh, which we've covered on the show. One thing that stood out to me is that she links Erdogan's low interest rate policy to the construction industry and says that Erdogan refuses to raise rates to curb inflation because it would, quote, cripple Turkey's construction magnates. Does that seem right to you? Yes, it does. It makes perfect sense. So, And that, that points to corruption in the public sector. That's exactly right. He always favored the people around him and he, he empowered uh, these uh, cronies, especially in the construction sector. So, you know, you've, you've talked a bit about foreign policy. What would another Erdogan term mean for Turkey's posture towards Russia? Well, more of what we've seen so far. I think I've always seen Erdogan's post-Ukraine Russia policies more tilted towards Russia. I know uh, in Western capitals, people always talked about how Turkey Erdogan pursued a more balanced approach. I've never seen it as, as a balanced approach. Erdogan basically gave Putin a lifeline. Uh, there are the, the, a lot of uh, companies, Russian companies set up in Turkey. Um, Russian oligarchs are, are welcome. They are using their money in Turkey to purchase Turkish citizenship and Turkish property. Uh, so it's uh, Erdogan has thrown an economic lifeline to a Putin who has been um, in some ways isolated economically because of the sanctions. So I think you'll see more of that. And the main reason I think... Um, is Turkish economy going forward is going to be in even bigger trouble. And it's very difficult for Erdogan to pull it off with the, uh, with the, the economic theory that he has embraced so far, uh, meaning, meaning that, I mean, he's going to need foreign direct investment. And uh, I don't see how Western foreign di direct investment is going to pour into the country uh, where... Erdogan, it's likely for Erdogan to double down on repression, further uh, erode the institutions. Uh, uh, so that will mean that Erdogan might might be forced to rely more on countries like like the Saudis and uh, Russia. In the past, uh, last year, injected money into Turkish economy. R Russian economy is not in great shape itself, so maybe not so much on. I mean, there are limits to what Russia can do in terms of helping Erdogan financially, but 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 then Erdogan could 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 lean on others like the, the Gulf countries, like China, for instance, and that would mean further. Uh, furthering of the gap between Turkey and the West. What would that mean for 
Sweden's NATO bid, for instance, if there's that that wide gulf? I I think I I think he's going to approve that. I think it was a matter of he didn't want to do that before the elections. Um, because of domestic concerns, but I think at the end of the day, he's going to approve uh, Sweden's me- membership. And when I talk about uh, further uh, further um, tension between between Turkey and the, and the West moving forward, I don't mean a a, uh, a dramatic rupture like Turkey leaving NATO. I'm not talking about that. He still values Turkey's NATO membership, and it gives him leverage vis-a-vis Russia too. So that means uh, that means that he's gonna uh, accepting Sweden's membership is not gonna be as costly after uh, after the elections for him domestically. What would another Erdogan term mean for other regional issues? I mean, there are too many lists, but we have Syrian President Assad returning to the diplomatic fold. We have tensions between the Erdogan government and Greece. Is the region more or less stable with? Erdogan at the helm? I mean, it is, I think, because, you know, he'll be facing a more unstable country moving forward because there's so many problems and he is, I mean, the top among them is the economic problems. How is he going to to address those problems? Uh, so I think there will be more, there will be more discontent, more uh, instability in the country. And when that happens, usually I think the the most effective trick is to turn to foreign policy and, and, uh, and and pursue an aggressive and sometimes militaristic behavior in the hopes that this would distract people from from the country's domestic problems so i think that that suggests to me that he might um, he might turn more more aggressive on on the foreign policy front you know, last question turkey celebrates its 100th anniversary in october no matter what the outcome of next Sunday's race, Erdogan has already made history as Turkey's longest serving leader. He served five years longer than the country's founder, Kemal Ataturk, who you mentioned earlier. 100 years later, what are you reflecting on? And how has Turkey changed? Is, is the, the, are the foundational principles of Kemalism dead? Is the country heading in the right direction? Oh, it certainly isn't. Uh, Turkish democracy was never perfect before Erdogan uh, came on the scene, uh, but he turned an aspiring democracy into an autocracy. Um, And he centralized power in his own hands so much that Turkey has become a, a textbook case of personalist autocracy. Uh, and until now, elections still matter to people. I saw genuine uh, enthusiasm uh, from people on the ground for a, a, a peaceful change through elections. Uh, and this election result, obviously, is a huge frustration for those who voted against Erdogan. And I think it deals a blow to their faith in the electoral process, especially after these widespread allegations of fraud. So Turkey is, is a dramatically different country than it was um, um, just uh, just uh, 10 years ago, I think. Yeah. I mean, you were you were just on the ground. Do people there in, in the opposition still have some hope for change in the future? Obviously, not as much hope as it was before the elections, because people really genuinely thought that a um, a first round win was within reach. Uh, now they're demoralized. And I think the opposition did not, the leadership did not do a good enough job 
in terms of communicating what was happening on the night of the on the night of the elections um and they disappeared the next day so that was that further demoralized people but the still i i you really have to give it to turkish people because despite everything that's happened in the country they still voted in large numbers the turnout was high and turkish civil society even though they're demoralized they're still doing everything in their power to mobilize people to go out and vote in the second round so this is although it's not the result that uh, many people uh, who want a better future for the country had expected Uh, this is still, I think, uh, this just tells you how strong um, people who want for who want change in the in in the country are. We have 10 days to go. We'll we'll wait and see what happens. Crazier things have have happened in global politics. So, Ganol, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's worth underscoring how many challenges Turkey has right now. The inflation rate is among the highest in the world. Thousands of people in southern Turkey are still without homes after the devastating earthquake there in February. So it wouldn't have been such a shock to see Turks vote for a new direction. In fact, they told pollsters they would. Many people may have even left the house thinking they'd vote for Kılıç Daroğlu, only to change their mind by the time they got to the polling place. But why? To me, it all comes back to the nation. What Erdogan and others like him, Orban in Hungary, Netanyahu in Israel, what they do, the reason they're able to stay in power for so long is they do something incredible. They're able to take the nation, this amorphous hodgepodge of history, culture, and mythology, and superimpose themselves onto it. They're able to take this made-up thing and make it real, to give it a face, So when voters get to the voting booth and see the list of options, they only see themselves. How can anyone beat that? If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and a review. Tell a friend about us. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday. 